So our purpose statement is equipping people with a knowledge of the Scripture in such a way that they passionately pursue Christ so they can impact their culture. So it's, it's three steps. You, you're equipped with the knowledge of the Lord, and then you passionately pursue, and then there's a cultural impact. And to do that, we must be people who think biblically and who think with clarity. Today is, is, is going to be a, a difficult sermon, to be honest. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Um, it is a time when we stop and we thank God for the gift of life. Tomorrow is the 45th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision entitled Roe v. Wade, 1973. And since 1973, in this country, we have aborted 60 million and 100,000 children. In 1984, January, President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation that this Sunday of the month in January would be Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. For that, we're very thankful. So as, as we go into this issue, which is a very difficult issue, let me say very clearly and loudly, there is forgiveness of sins because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for us. There are people here and in our worship center who have participated in abortion as the mother or the father, or a parent out of shame and embarrassment has asked their child to get an abortion. All of those are sins, sinful behavior. But there's forgiveness when you repent and believe the good news of Christ and you trust Him. So my purpose today is not to shame or browbeat people, but to hold up the standard of the Scripture regarding life. I was reading Matthew 21 recently, and in Matthew 21, I thought such a beautiful composite of the gospel. Christ is having this ongoing dialogue with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the purity party, uptight, rules-oriented, thought that they were God's A team and everybody else was a B team at best. And so Christ is talking to the Pharisees who, who were all about outward performance and outward fulfillment, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And Christ says in Matthew chapter 21 and, and verse 31, he says to the Pharisees, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, now that, that, you're, a pro, you're, you're a Pharisee and you hear that and you say, what? You're kidding me. I mean, the tax collectors were the, the shrewd, duplicitous, somewhat crooks who worked for the occupational forces, and they took taxes from the people and gave most of it to the Roman government, but they pocketed a lot of the money in their own trousers or robes or whatever they wore. And, and so they were hated by the Jews despised by the Jews. They were not only traitors, but they were liars and thieves. Prostitutes were prostitutes. And the Jews believed in sexual fidelity, supposedly, and so to say that the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you, ahead of you guys is an incredible statement, which means the gospel is for all people. The gospel is for tax collectors and prostitutes and cheats and thieves and liars and all types of people like us. But you, you balance that, he keeps on the dialogue, you balance that 
with Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. And this is what he says in verse 43. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Pharisees, Jews, and given to a people producing its fruit. So I said, you know, the, the beauty of the gospel is he invites all people to come, tax collectors, prostitutes, you name it. But, but, but once we are his child, he looks at us and he says, I expect my people out of gratitude and out of the power of the Holy Spirit to produce a fruit that is keeping with their repentance. The fruit of a life that desires to be honoring to God. And we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 5 today, an Old Testament book written to the people of God who were about to go into judgment because of their disobedience. And, and, and the, the problem in Isaiah 5 is the people of God had cast off the reality of God and his rule, and they'd become their own many gods, individual after individual. Because one of the woes in Isaiah 5 is, is verse 20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe, or, or he says, that means it's horrid. Woe to those who were wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. So, so they had cast off the reality of the living God and they had become their own arbiters of truth. And because of that, they went down the precipitous slope. So my thesis this morning is this. When you cast off the truth of God and you come to the point of saying men and women are existing, but they're not necessarily made in the image of God. They're entities. When you cast off the rule of God, then there's an inseparable link that downgrades the dignity of men and women. When you read the Bible, you come away with this understanding Men and women and boys and girls are made in the image of God. Therefore, they are fully worthy of respect and Christian love. So when we leave today and you go out and you see all types of people, and these people you see are made in the image of God. They're not accidents. They're not mere entities walking around with a skeletal frame and muscles. They are people made in the image of God. Therefore, they're worthy of respect and Christian love. All people, all races, male, female, young, old, made in the image of God. And when you deny that, there's a slippery slope. And here's, here's the denial. In chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. God's people are his pleasant planting. Then he says this, And he looked for justice, but behold, there was only bloodshed. And he looked for righteousness, behold, there was only an outcry. We believe an outcry of, of, of being bludgeoned or uncared for. So, so God looks for justice, but there's only bloodshed. And when you disregard man and you shed the blood of innocent people, there is a link between that and the woes that follow. For some people, it's gradual. For some people, it's steep. So I'm, you go to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about this issue. And, and he says this, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged 
the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Verse 28, and, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips and slanderers and haters of God and insolent and haughty and boastful and inventors of evil and disobedient to their parents. You see, when you deny the reality of God and you do your own thing and you go your own way, it's a gradual or very steep slope where you reap terrible consequences. So in our culture, when we shed the blood of innocent children, there's a ramification to what we do. And we're going to see that in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5 has six woes. I'm going to cover woes 1 and 2 and then combine 4 and 1 as we go through this text to make some application. So, so the first woe is, is towards people who use their wealth to economically deprive poor people. They use their wealth to economically deprive poor people. It says, what are those who join house to house? Verse 8, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. You just push them out into the, the boondocks. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely your many houses shall be desolate and large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of your vineyard shall yield but one bath, which is a small amount, and one homeless seed shall yield but a small ephah. Says, you're not going to be blessed by God. And in other words, they use their economic means and their abilities to push people out and to disenfranchise the poor. Now, very quickly, the Bible is not opposed to wealth. In fact, God honors people, some people, with wealth. But the Bible is incredibly opposed to the misuse of wealth and the abuse of people. In James chapter 5, the book James writes in verse 4, he says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, you, you haven't done the right thing economically, you rich people, you people of position and privilege, and the cries of those Basic day workers that you have not paid have reached the ears of the Lord God Almighty. He says in chapter 2, don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. If somebody comes into your worship time and they're wearing a big ring and an expensive robe and they look like they may have money and you give them a preferential seat, but you say to the poor people, sit here by my feet, just get it out of my way. He says, you become evil, evil professors, evil professors of faith with cruel thoughts. So God is not opposed to wealth, but he's opposed to the misuse of wealth. And that's why in 1 Timothy 6, an incredible statement, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, command those or charge those, same word, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but command them to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share, because as they do that, they will lay up a firm foundation for the coming age. And, and so you read that, and I say, I say, I say as, as somebody that's preaching the Bible today in a local church as a pastor, I command you 
to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. That's called the stewardship of life. I command you to live in a way that's honoring to the Lord in the way you use your money. That's what the Bible says. So the Bible is, is not opposed to wealth. The second woe is a woe about self-indulgence. It says, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them, and they have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. They have no regard for the things of God. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of knowledge. God says, I'm going to judge them. They have a lack of knowledge because they don't think right thoughts about the living God. And their honored men will go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. So I was reading and thinking about this and, and I went to a, a local fitness center and I walked by a young woman on a treadmill and she was getting after it. And she had a, a shirt with, with writing on the back. And I just kind of glanced at the writing and I, I'm doing this text thinking about my, my mind. And the, 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 the teacher said, we, we wake up early in the morning and we drink. We drink at mid-morning, we drink at lunch, we drink in the afternoon, we drink at night, we drink. And I went, really? My, my first thought was, you better tie yourself to that treadmill because that's a lot of calories you're pouring down. You better stay on treadmill about five hours a day. But the second thought was this, who in the world would put on a t-shirt like that? Bragging about drinking, these people would. These people would. We drink. And we, we, and we have the money to hire a band that comes in and, and they play music all day long so that we, we can party and have festivals and, 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 and we're, we're all about this self-indulgence. Listen, when you give up the knowledge of God and you live as unto yourself, it's easy to become self-indulgent and disregard people. And then woes 3, 4, 5, and 6. All one time, verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood and who draw sin as with cart ropes and who say, mocking God, they say this, let, let him, let God be quick and let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw me and let it come that we may know it, close quote. They're just mocking God. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, and who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own insight. And then the last woe was about the, the, the leaders of the land and the judges of the land. Woe to those men who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong, strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore... As the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down into the flame, so their root will be as rottenness. Verse 25, therefore, the anger of Jehovah was kindled against his people. The judges of the land, you, you think, you know, we're going to go to the judges of the land, the, the older men, the men who have experienced some wisdom, and we can ask them to stand in the gap. But it says, these men, and he uses words, I think, to... to to really mock them. He says, they're heroes at drinking wine. They're valiant men in making strong drink. They should be heroes in the pursuit of God. They should be valiant men in crying out for justice, but they're not. And he says, they acquit the guilty for a bribe 
and deprive the innocent of his right. There's a link between verse 7. God's looking for justice, and he only finds bloodshed and living this type of lifestyle. Man is the measure of all things. Man is the arbiter of truth. So, a few statements. I'm covering the sanctity of human life this morning because of the sheer enormity of the issue. 60 million, 100,000 children in our culture aborted since 1973. Once again, there is forgiveness in Christ. There, there are people here who have been involved in that. There's forgiveness when you repent and believe the good news and you run to the cross. Second statement is, some will leave here today saying that that's a political address. This is not a political address. Abortion is not a political issue. It is a biblical issue. Do not let people paint you into that corner. It is a biblical issue. Life is a gift from God. The third thing is that, and one reason I feel so burdened about this, and it's a burden, is if you're under the age of 62, which is the vast majority of the people in our worshiping community, you do not remember a time when abortion was not used as a means of birth control or gender selection. And when something that is a heinous thing, like abortion, becomes part of your cultural landscape, it is easy for that to become endemic into your soul unless someone stands up and says, it's wrong. It's sin against God. And I'm here to say today, it is wrong and it's sin against God and it's sin against life. Example, I've been in a country numerous times in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and it's a country of 58 million. And if you go to the cross-cultural workers there, the missionaries, and the leaders of that church and that country who have been walking with the Lord for a few years, and you say to them, what is the major issue in this country that, that, that keeps the church from being the church? They'll say, the men are not leaders. The men are passive. The men don't lead in the home, in the, in, the, in the community, in the culture. The men are passive. And, and, you know, the Bible says that men are to be men who are servant leaders in the home and the church especially, that, that we are pace setters, that we are the men who, 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 who initiate things, that we are to be the people at the forefront. I said to, at man to man on Friday morning that if somebody comes into your house and says, I've got to kill somebody at this table, the husband jumps up and takes the barrel of the gun and points it on his, on his forehead and says, fire. He protects his family. That's why I love man to man. I love to see these men just praying together and walking together. And on Friday morning, as we, we prepare our hearts to be men uh, who are going to heaven, and as we eat food that gets us there quicker. Yeah. So, 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 men. On the other hand, if you go to parts of, I'll just tell you, if you go to India, I've been at the pastor's conference in India. And women in India have been treated as non-entities for centuries. And so I had a pastor tell me, we have to stand up in church occasionally and say to our men, men, we remind you, you don't beat your wives. That's against the scripture. In fact, 1 Peter 3 says, to live with your wife in the way of knowledge as with the weaker vessel, and you guard her and you honor her. I'm thinking, I can't, wow. He says, if you don't challenge that, it's part of the cultural landscape. 
There's a wonderful, wonderful book entitled The Bridge of Andal, written by Minchner, and it's uh, about the 1956 uprising in Hungary against the Soviets. In 1956, the people of Hungary rose up in mass, especially in Budapest, and they said, we will not put up with tyranny anymore. We're tired of the, of the Soviet boot on our throat. And so they, they took over their country. And for five glorious days, there was liberty and a movement to liberty. And then the Soviet troops came in. The, 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 the tanks came rumbling into, into Budapest early on a Sunday morning. Hundreds and hundreds were killed in the streets. Thousands and thousands were put in prison for years and years. And there's a bridge called the Bridge of Andal, and it's between Hungary and freedom in Austria. And the bridge is a nondescript bridge. If you look it up, it looks like it's just a little footbridge, really, and it's, it's no longer really than the Isle of this sanctuary. But, but on one side was totalitarianism and horror, and on the other side was freedom and how hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people streamed to that bridge and tried to get across before the Soviets closed it down. And, and they did close it down. But in the book, Mishra says that he's talked to numerous Hungarians who, who say that, you know, the, 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 the child at that time was taken from, really, birth and educated by the communist system. And the communists told them, there's no God, you have no rights, the state is your God, the oligarchs or the small group of people that run your state de decide the rules. There's no inalienable rights. There's no natural rights. There's no natural law. So we determine what is truth. And if anyone ever comes up against that, they should be reported and imprisoned because they're fighting against the glory of our revolution. And so Mishnah says that he talked to person after person who said, when my, when my child is 13 or 14, we had to do this. They got to the point where they could think well and they could reason well and that we could trust them to... to, to hopefully not betray us, and we would lock the door and pull the shades and say to the, our child, everything you have heard from your teachers and the communist authorities is a lie. There is a God. God made man in his image. There are rights that are given to us by God. The state doesn't give us our rights. God does. We answer to God. Realize their child could walk out and go to the local communist authority and hand in their parents and they'd be in prison that night. And I thought, we have, of course, incredible freedom here, but we need to look at our children occasionally and say, you know, that's a lie. It's, it's a lie. It's not true. CBS News did a story on Iceland, or I think it's Iceland. I get them confused, Iceland or Greenland. But anyway, Iceland has had a um, movement where now they're almost, um, not coercing, but strongly encouraging any mother who tests to have a Down syndrome child to have an abortion. And so CBS News had a banner headline that says, uh, Iceland is eradicating Down syndrome. And I thought, that's a lie from the pit of hell. They're not eradicating Down syndrome, they're killing babies. They're killing babies. And we have to tell our children, it, it, it's, it's a lie. And so a couple of thoughts and application. So I'm going to address for a few minutes the changing face of the pro-choice movement. In 1979, I was a seminary student, and there was an inaugural seminar led by these two men, Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Coop. Francis Schaeffer was a, a missionary, Christian thinker, par excellence, died in 1984. 
C. Everett Koop was the surgeon-in-chief of the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, later became the Surgeon General of the United States in the Reagan administration. But in 1979, they put together a seminar and a book entitled Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And the inaugural seminar was in Dallas, Texas, and I went to it. I took a young lady that I was trying to impress uh, with me, and she ended up, I asked her six months later to marry me, and she did, much to my joy. And so we went to this, and it was an incredible experience. Now, Roe v. Wade had happened six years before, but at the seminar, here's a few things that we heard. Said that Schaefer says that each era faces its own unique blend of problems. Our time is no exception. This is 1979. Those who regard individuals as expendable raw material to be molded, exploited, and then discarded battle on many fronts with those of us who see each person as unique and special, worthwhile, and irreplaceable. Later he said this. The schizophrenia and schizophrenic nature of our society is evident as the common practice of gifted pediatricians who provide the maximum resuscitative and supportive care in newborn intensive care nurseries where premature infants were under their care. I mean, I've been to these nurseries where these, these little babies are just, they're just, they're there, and yet they survive, and it's wonderful. He says, conversely, Obstetricians in the same medical center are routinely destroying enormous numbers of unborn babies who were normal and frequently of larger size. Minors who could not legally purchase alcohol or cigarettes could have an abortion on demand and without parental consent or knowledge. Goes on to say, Schaefer and Coop pointed out other examples of moral schizophrenia. Disabled persons who were given new access to facilities and services in the name of human rights, while preborn infants diagnosed with the same disabilities were often aborted with the advice that it would be, quote, wrong to bring such a baby into the world. So that, that's, that was what was happening in 1979. And, um, and, 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 and so I became involved in the pro-life movement. As a seminary student, I was working on college campuses north of Dallas. And, and so, um, this became an issue, still is a huge issue. And so some students at a local campus said, we want to have a debate about the pro-life issue. And they asked me to represent the pro-life cause and, uh, at Texas Women's University. Had a good turnout. And they said the Planned Parenthood of Dallas will supply the pro-choice argument. And I thought, okay, okay. I, I, I was preparing myself. Those of you that are old remember a woman named Bella Abzug. Um, she was big and wore a big hat, and she was kind of a rough woman. And, I mean, she was pretty rough. Like, you, she, she, was, she was tough. She was very adamant about these issues. And, um, and I, was, I, was, I was kind of preparing for Bella Abzug. Well, a very lovely 30-year-old, beautiful young woman walked through the door, stylishly dressed, very kind. And we had this debate, and I thought it, was, it went very well. But this is what she said, and this is just unbelievable to me today. She said, we would never, ever, 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 ever advocate the abortion of a child after 12 weeks or a fetus after 12 weeks because we believe that life begins at 12 weeks and therefore we would not do that. That's what they said. That was our whole argument. Now, that, that's the argument we heard all the time, this 12 weeks. And, and since then, we, we've, we know that because of medical advance, 
we know a lot more information. For example, at, at ultrasound has given us a stunning window into the womb that shows the unborn at eight weeks. Listen to this. Sucking his thumb, recoiling from pricking, responding to sound. All the organs are present. The brain is functioning. The heart is pumping. The liver is making blood cells. The kidneys are cleaning fluids. And there's a fingerprint. Virtually all abortions happen later than this date now. So, so it was the whole argument was 12 weeks, 12 weeks. And then point two is, or place two is President Clinton, when he ran for president in his two election cycles, said, we want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. That was his mantra. That's what he said. But in position three today, and this is what is so disturbing to me, and it's a great sorrow to my heart. Today, abortion is celebrated as a good thing. I'm talking about abortion up to the very moment of birth. There's a website called Shout Your Abortion, and I did some research and went to that website. Very tastefully done. Uh, but here, here are some of the excerpts from letters posted. Still now, I don't have feelings about my abortion, and it's been 14 years. Another said, I still say it was one of the smartest decisions I ever made. Another, my abortion was the best decision I ever made. And, or another, I got to choose when and with who I had my children, my body, my life, my choice. They have some videos of people speaking, and there was one 10-minute video done by a woman who was incredibly bright and attractive and, and funny. She gave a comic routine on her abortion. It was 10 minutes. I can only watch four minutes. It was so discouraging, so disgusting. Another video showed a woman, just a one-minute video, and she said this, my baby is better off now than if she had been born into our home, close quote. And I thought, yeah. Do you really believe it? Do you really believe that killing your baby is better than letting them be born into a home where there's some dysfunction? Abortion as a, a right. It's to be celebrated. And then there was this show called Scandal. It's a show starring Carrie Washington. She's an assistant to the president, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a soap opera on ABC. But two years ago, the Christmas show showed uh, Olivia Page, portrayed by Carrie Washington, uh, getting an abortion. And um, as the abortion is done, she has a smile on her face, a hint of a smile. And, and as they do the abortion, they have... The music in the background is Silent Night, Holy Night. And I can't tell you, uh, first of all, that's just blasphemous, but how horrific that is and how it should break our hearts. So we've gone from never after 12 weeks to now abortion is celebrated up until the very moment of birth. And it is with great sorrow that I tell you that one of our two major political parties in this country does not even allow for debate on abortion. 
1992, there was a governor of a, the state of Pennsylvania named Bob Casey. Now, Pennsylvania is an electoral-rich state. And the 1992 Democratic National Convention, Bob Casey requested a five-minute ability to speak and to speak on why he is pro-life. And the Democratic Convention denied him that right. This is the governor of Pennsylvania. This isn't, you know, this is the governor of Pennsylvania. And since then, it's become even more vehement in their opposition to, to life. That's a great sadness to me. It's a great sadness to me that the standard bearer of the Democrat Party in our, for, in our last election, just a few months ago after the election, was feted at the 100 years strong, the celebration of a century for Planned Parenthood on Tuesday, May the 2nd, 2017. The Honorable Hillary Rodham Clinton was presented, this is from a national, this is a Planned Parenthood communication, was given the Champion of the Century Award for her 40 years of service to women and girls. Shonda Rhimes was given the Champion of Change Award. She wrote Scandal that shows Silent Night, Holy Night, and abortion for revolutionizing the way women and issues of reproductive health are portrayed on television. Planned Parenthood has aborted eight of the 60 million children in our culture. That's a great sorrow to my soul. So, so what, what are we to do? What is our response? First of all, we pray for revival. We pray that God would change the hearts of our people to the things of Christ. We pray that God would change the minds of our leaders. We, we, we need to pray for leaders that understand, that, as, as the proverb says, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We, we need to pray for leaders who understand that every man, woman, and boy and girl is worthy of respect and Christian love. Number two, we must repent. There's full forgiveness in Christ to those who repent. If you've been involved in this, I call upon you to repent. And to show forth the fruit of repentance by speaking out against the taking of life. There's forgiveness in Christ. Let me tell you, here's what the devil does. The devil is a shame giver. So the devil's going to take your sin, whatever it is, and he's going to give you shame and paint you in a corner and say, you're worthless, you're worthless, and you're surrounded by wet paint. You cannot leave this corner. And if you've been involved in abortion issues and you've done this and, and, and you, you need to repent and understand the forgiveness of Christ and flee from your sin and don't let the, the devil shame you. to, to Don't let the, the devil silence your voice in speaking out on this issue. Speak out with brokenness and love and compassion. Do not let the devil shame you into silence. Third thing we must do is we must speak with brokenness and love. Every person we meet today is made in the image of God. The jihadists of North Africa and the Middle East are made in the image of God and they're worthy of respect and Christian love. Those who run clinics that take the life of children are worthy of respect and Christian love. They're image bearers. I was doing research on this and I was on the internet and about five years ago, Ben Carson, who is an incredible man, 
He's a neurosurgeon. Who's, he's an African-American. His, his life story is unbelievable, and he is gracious, and he's kind, and he's diligent, and he is a man. And he's on this show that I've never seen called The View. So I've never seen The View, so that was my first exposure to The View. The View, obviously, is a, it's a group of women sitting in a round ceremony at my table, and they're talking about events. And I recognize a couple of the people there, one of them, Whoopi Goldberg, and Ben Carson sitting there, and he's trying to explain why he's pro-life, and he is articulate, and he's nailing it, and he's kind. I mean, this guy pioneered a surgery um, in the womb of women to correct issues. I mean, this guy is gifted, and he's worthy of respect and, and on, on numerous levels, not just because he's made the image of God, but because he, he is, should be listened to. And here, here these women, and as he talks, they're interrupting him, and they're rolling their eyes, and they're crossing their arms, and they're showing total disrespect, and I'm thought, Oh, I can't tell you what I thought because it's Sunday and I'm preaching, you know. But I, I, I thought, you know, I had bad thoughts. And then I hit pause and I said, God, forgive me. I, I am cheering on this brother who's arguing for the fact that because people made in the gym of God, they deserve respect and Christian love. And I'm really hating some of these women who are showing so much disrespect. And I prayed for the women while I'm sitting there. I said, God, bring your salvation to these people. Show them the rightness and the glory and the beauty of Jesus and get their worldview right. We don't respond to hate and cynicism and ugliness with like. We respond with brokenness and love and diligence. And I thought about dear old William Tyndale. William Tyndale was burned at the stake in 15 and 36 in England because he just preached about Jesus. And he said, you're saved by faith alone, not through the offices of the church, which upset the status quo. He just talked about Christ. And so William Tyndale was condemned to death. They tied him to the stake and they lit the kindling at his feet. And as the fire consumed his clothes and started eating his flesh, he had one last prayer, he says, he cried out, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. 30 years later, 28 years later, the Reformation powered into England. And England became the greatest missionary sending country in the history of Christendom until we were, became that. I think, Lord, make me like William Tyndale, as, as enemies approach and defile or even kill we're praying their eyes would be open, which is what Jesus did. So, brothers and sisters, we speak with brokenness. We speak with love. We speak with diligence. Fourthly, we, we live out our convictions in tangible ways. There's a listing of people who are involved in adoption and foster ministries and pleading for the life of the unborn, the Low Country Pregnancy Center, they're all listed there. And we, we should be praying for these people and supporting and loving them and walking with them. Because this is an issue about stewardship and biblical authority, not cultural issues. This is about God and God's people and the gift of life. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the the fact that we don't have to go back to square one when we are confronted with these issues. That we just go to the Bible.
And thank you that Isaiah shows us that there is a link between the shedding of innocent blood and mistreating people. That when man becomes the measure of all things and God does not, then man can easily discount different ethnicities or different socioeconomic classes or different geographical zones. But when Jesus reigns in your heart and your life and you know the glory of the living God, then you say, all men and women are made in the image of God. And they're worthy of respect and Christian love. And Lord, I, I pray you'd help us to love people who are difficult to love. I pray we would not respond in kind when people say things that make us prickly. But I pray instead we'd be gentle people and caring people and loving people. We pray for all the young people that go to this church and uh, young married families, even parents of teenagers, that, the Lord, uh, that we would cry out for the dignity and the worth of all men and women. Thank you for that. So we ask that you move in our hearts and move in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.